everyone coming to you live from my back porch unfortunately not able to see you guys all on campus but i must say this is a pretty delightful if i can't be with you on campus uh, this is this is a pretty good second um, but we're going to be continuing our series uh, in the psalms we're going to be doing uh, our sermons like we did last week via podcast and now we're going to have a youtube video as well for for those of you who are visual learners and we're going to continue this on um, because we think this is important um, and RUF is a place where we believe that you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace and at the same time you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace and what that means is that God's grace is of central importance uh, God's grace is the most fundamental important thing that we think you can know and that's what RUF is all about and this semester we've been in a series uh, in the Old Testament book of the Psalms called Songs That Shape Us. Songs That Shape Us. And that's exactly what the Psalms are. The Psalms are, are songs that are meant to get to work them themselves inside of you. That They're meant to get inside our bones and to shape how we relate to God, how we relate to one another, and how we relate to the world around us. And today we're going to be looking at Psalm 103. Psalm 103. Uh, this is a personal favorite of mine. Molly and I actually had this uh, read at our wedding, so I'm excited to get to talk about this with you guys. Uh, and Psalm 103 is, is a song about God, a song about God. So I'll read the passage for us, and uh, then we can go ahead and get started. So Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are impressed, oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is God's word. Let me pray for us and we can get started. Father, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you that you um, 
that you speak to us. Lord, that you didn't leave us to figure things out on our own. And Lord, I pray um, for us as we uh, read this passage, as we watch individually or listen individually. Lord, I pray for each and every one of us that you would open our eyes, that we may see you for who you are. Lord, in this song about you, that we would get a clear picture of who you are, that we would know who you are, and that we would love you for who you are. All these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know about you, um, but I have a couple of uh, diagnostic questions uh, that I use to determine whether I'm going to be friends with someone or not. Um, questions that tell me everything I need to know about someone. Um, and for you, maybe these could be questions about like, like music or, or politics or, or anything like that. So I'll, I'll share my questions. I'm sure we all have some of these. Uh, my first question, do you like crunchy peanut butter or smooth peanut butter? Basically, this question is me asking, are you a psychopath who likes crunchy peanut butter or are you a good person who likes smooth peanut butter? Or another one, uh, this is another dividing line question that I use all the time. Are you the type of person who has 10,000 unread emails or the type who clears your inbox every day? Again, this question for me is, are you a psychopath who has 10,000, like that little bubble that has 10,000 up there on it? Or are you a good person that clears your inbox every day? And see, Psalm 103 is a lot like these diagnostic questions that I have and that I'm sure some of you have. Psalm 103, it forces us to come down on one side or on the other. But Psalm 103 is not about something as trivial as peanut butter, as important as that may be, or your email inbox. It's a song about God. It's a hymn of praise, a hymn that the people of God would have sung together to remind them of who God is, to be shaped in how they view him and how they relate to him. Theologian uh, A.W. Tozier said this. He said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most enlightening fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. Think about that. The, the most important thing about someone, the most telling thing about someone, and indeed the most telling thing about ourselves is what we imagine God to be like. The most important thing about you is who you think God is. Or maybe to come at it another way, if you're having trouble getting at this, like, what do I think about God? Well, I just think what the Bible says. Well, ask yourself this question. If you were to imagine the look on God's face when he looks at you, what would it be? What look would there be on God's face when he looks at you? Would it be a face that's full of compassion? Would it be a face that, is, that, that looks annoyed? Would it be a face that's full of anger? Or would he even refuse to look at you? You see, this, this gut response tells you how you're dealing with God, tells you who you think God is. And this is what Psalm 103 is all about. It's all about who God is. It answers the question, what is God like? How should we respond to him? Psalm 103 tells us 
who God is. So at the beginning of this psalm, it says, uh, it says this, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And, then, and if you pay attention as I was reading the psalm, it, it says, Bless the Lord again and again. It actually says it seven times. What does it mean to bless the Lord? Uh, when we think about uh, blessing, generally we think about someone who has something blessing someone with, with, with something that they don't have, right? It assumes that the person who is doing the blessing is over the person who is being blessed. Uh, one of my favorite uh, little kind of YouTube show things that I've watched, I, it's, uh, it's by Complex Magazine. It's called Sneaker Shopping. Uh, and it's basically this host, he, he gets people together, he'll get like famous, uh, famous rap artists, uh, famous NBA players, uh, any number of celebrities, and they'll just get together and they'll go to these New York City like boutique sneaker shops. And they will spend thousands of dollars. And at one point in, in every episode of sneaker shopping, the host asks like, who are you going to bless these, like who are you going to bless with these sneakers? Like who are you going to give a pair of these sneakers to? Right? The assumption is these people have all this money, they spend all this money on these shoes, and they're going to they're gonna give them to someone who is undeserving. They're going to bless them. This is what we think about when we hear blessing. And yet we see here a call for us to bless the Lord. A call for us to bless God. And if you're familiar with the Bible, this should strike you as a little bit strange. Again and again, the Lord is depicted as the one who blesses us. We're not the ones who bless him. So how can we bless him? What does it mean for us to bless the Lord, like this psalm says? I think for us to bless God doesn't mean that we are above God in any way. No, it means that we are able to respond to his prior blessing through adoring him. We respond to what he's done in our lives and we adore him for it. This idea kind of comes out in verse 2. Verse 2 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Specifically there, we're told to forget not all his benefits. We're supposed to call to mind all the things that God has done for us. We're supposed to uh, reflect on who Scripture says that he is. We're supposed to adore God for who he says he is. So I think kind of the best way that I could sum it up and try to make it simple, uh, there's a, an artist named Nathan Partain. Um, if you go to Redeemer, they sing some of his songs at, at church. He's, he's really great. But he has a song, um, and he said the chorus is this. It says, of God, it says, you are good, and all you do is good. So that's my simple definition of what it means to bless the Lord. It means to say to God, you are good, and all you do is good. And this is the goal of this psalm. It begins with a call to bless the Lord, O my soul. And then in verse 22, the last words are bless the Lord, O my soul. The goal of this psalm is for us to be able to say to God with absolute integrity, you are good and all that you do is good. So what does this psalm show us about who God is? How does it help us get to this place where we can say to God with integrity, you are good? <clears throat> And this is a long psalm, so uh, we're just going to jump around to a couple different places and kind of see, see what it says. So if you would first off, look with me to verse 3. In verse 3 it says, The Lord forgives all of your iniquity. See, the first thing that comes to mind in this hymn of adoration, written by David, the great King David, 
is God's forgiveness. And David would have known a lot about God's forgiveness. The first thing that David brings to mind is that God is not the type of God who expects us to be perfect. He's not the type of God who who wants us to constantly be working our way up to him as if we could ever do that. No, the first thing that we need to know about God is that he is forgiving, that he moves toward us in our imperfection. And and this, this phrase here, forgives all your iniquity, to forgive iniquity, this word really is kind of focusing on the guilt that is caused by our sin and our failure. The guilt that comes when we do something wrong and we know that we shouldn't do it. It says here that the Lord forgives that. But not only that, it says in the later part of the verse, it says, the Lord heals all your diseases. And I don't think that this is meant to be a promise that God will take away everyone's sickness. I don't think that that's what David is getting at here. Rather, I think disease here refers to the fallout from our sin. So so what David is doing here is he is connecting sin with disease. And why would he do that? Well, let's, let's remind ourselves what sin is in the first place. Sin is at its core wanting anything more than God. It's wanting anything more than God. And the Bible tells us that we are actually designed to be satisfied in God that we were meant to want him completely, that we were meant to exist within him perfectly, that we find all of our longings met in him. And sin is saying that's not true. Sin is finding satisfaction anywhere other than God. It's seeking outside of God. So, So in this instance, it makes sense that if we were designed to be satisfied in God and sin is wanting anything other than God, it makes sense that we would be sick, right? It's like putting, putting kerosene into a normal car. It's just, it's not going to work. Things are going to go wrong. When we sin, there's always disease that follows. There's brokenness that follows. It hurts us. But then here we see that God heals our diseases. He heals all your diseases. Not only does he forgive, he brings healing from the consequences that we deserve from our sin. But then even more than that, in verse 5, we see that he brings renewal. It says he satisfies us with good so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. He he brings renewal. He promises that, that everyone who trusts in the Lord is able to be renewed with vigor like an eagle, like an eagle who flies high in the sky. We, that is available to us even as we sin. We are enabled to be restored. This is not how uh, many of us forgive, is it? How many of us are that forgiving, right? That our our forgiving is not in word only. If you're anything like me, I'm pretty quick to uh, at least say to someone that I forgive them. I'm quick to say to them, like, okay, you know, that's that's fine, I get it, we all mess up. But but I'm not quick to forget. I'm prone to say to someone in in that moment of shame later on, after I've already forgiven them, I'm prone to remind them of the thing that I've forgiven them of. I, I, I might forgive someone, but I'm always a little bit guarded towards them. And what we see here is that God is not like this at all. That God forgives. Not only does he forgive, he heals us from the sin that is our fault. And then he renews us. He puts us back into right relationship with him. He restores us to what we're created to be. 
So God forgives us, he heals us, and he renews us. Look with me, moving on to verses 6 and 7. We see here that the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. And the next place that this hymn turns is to God's acts within history. And specifically, this is a turn to the story of the Exodus. Uh, And this is the biggest story uh, in the Old Testament. This is the thing that we're constantly being pointed back to, uh, that God is reminding his people of again and again. And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, uh, the Exodus is the story of, of God's people being rescued out of slavery under Pharaoh and then being brought into the promised land to live and worship and serve God completely. The people of God were under an abusive king who, who enslaved them. And then God rescues them, and then he becomes their king. He gives them a law. He tells them how they're supposed to live. He gives them grace upon grace. This is the story of the Exodus. And so the people of God, at the beginning of Exodus, they cry out to the Lord, and he rescues them from Egypt. He brings them through the Red Sea. He brings them out into the wilderness to the foot of Mount Sinai, where he gives Moses the law. He gives Moses the Ten Commandments. And that Moses receives these Ten Commandments, and he goes down to the mountain, goes down from the mountain, and he reads them in front of all the people of Israel. And then the people respond by saying, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Like, this is this emphatic, like, this is who we're going to be. We're going to follow this. This is who we are going to be. This is like the most glorious moment in Israel's history. They've been rescued from slavery, and they have this, this gracious king that they have committed to follow. And yet, a couple chapters later, like very shortly after this, the people of Israel decide that they're going to break the commandments that they have just been given. The, the commandments say that you should have no God before the Lord, that you should never make a graven image of God. And, and what do they do? They make a golden calf that they're going to bow down and worship. And after they do this, Moses goes up to the mountain, and, and he pleads with God on behalf of the people. He said, Lord, I I know that they have messed up. I know the sin. It's inexcusable. And it's this moment right here that our psalm is referencing. It's referencing how God responds after the people have sinned, after the people have rejected. When Moses goes up to the Lord and, and he asks him to spare the people, this is how the Lord responds. He says to him this, he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. See, this is almost a word-for-word quote of verses 8 and 9 in our passage. It says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. And and remember kind of what the purpose of this psalm is. The, The purpose of this psalm is to get us to say to God, You are good and all you do is good. It reminds us not to forget his benefits. And then the first place it goes to show us that, that why we should do this is a story of the people of God forgetting his benefits. It goes to the story of the Exodus, where, where the people of God forget the benefits of the Lord more blatantly than they ever have before. And it's at this moment where they forget. It was at Israel's worst and most inexplicable failure that God revealed himself to be merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's who God is. He is overwhelmingly gracious even in our worst failure. As it says in verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. God gives grace in the midst of our most shameful failures. So God gives grace. What else do we see? We see, we see in verse 13 that God is a compassionate and knowing father as well. In verse 13 it says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So in, in our culture, the idea of God as uh, our father or God as our parent or God that, you know, we all come from God, it's not necessarily a foreign concept. Um, in one sense, it's not extremely shocking, right? Like, regardless of what someone believes, I, I, I think we've all heard people say things like, you know, we're all God's children, right? The fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. Like, a lot of people believe that. But in the ancient world, this idea of God being compassionate like a father would have been a completely foreign idea. It would not have been something that they would have experienced before. In fact, sometimes kings like Pharaoh actually referred to himself as a son of God. Um, but that was not an option for the normal Egyptian. And that was definitely not an option for the Israelites living there. So like the, the, the sort of God that the Israelites would have been familiar and would have been nothing like a father who shows compassion to his children. The gods of the surrounding nations were not even remotely compassionate. Uh, in 1 Kings 17, we kind of see an example of this. Um, the prophet Elijah ends up in this showdown with the prophets of, of Baal. The technical correct way to pronounce it is Baal, but that just sounds really weird, so I'm going to go Baal. Um, but Baal was a deity of the, of the Canaanite people. And in order for these prophets of Baal to get, to get Baal to do what they wanted, to get Baal to even to listen to them, uh, the story tells us that these prophets, they spent hours like dancing, performing rituals, and even cutting themselves with swords, like making blood come from them so that they would get their God to pay attention to them. Their God was someone who was so disinterested in them. He was disinterested in their affairs that they were constantly trying to figure out ways to get their God to listen to them. But this is not the God that we see here. The God that we see here is compassionate in the same way that a good father is compassionate to his children. The Lord in his compassion comes down to us. But we see more than that in verse 14. Not only does he, is he compassionate towards us, not only does he have pity, he also knows us. He knows us intimately. It says, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So what this is saying here is God is not a deadbeat dad. God is not a deadbeat dad. He is a compassionate, knowing father. And this word compassionate here, uh, in, in the original language, it, it, talks, it has to do kind of like with your, your inward parts. Sometimes it can be translated bowels. That's just how the ancient people thought about compassion. It was, it was a movement of your inward parts towards someone. This is the same word that would be used to refer to how a, a, a pregnant woman would feel towards her child. It's how a, a, mother, a mother feels towards her unborn child. That's the feeling that God has for us. It says that God feels for us. He's a compassionate, knowing father. 
So this psalm shows us, I mean, as we've seen just from this quick survey, it shows us again and again why we can say to God, you are good and all you do is good. God forgives us. He heals us. He renews us. God meets us with grace in our worst failure. And God is a compassionate and knowing Father. And it would be really tempting to just end there. Because it's like, well, that's what the Bible says about him. So believe it. Done. It'd be tempting to end here, but I think we're called to press into this a little bit further. So uh, when I was in seminary, um, we had to take something called preaching lab, um, which is just like your, your chem lab. Um, it's, it's pretty, it, but it's pretty horrifying. Like it's basically what would happen, uh, is it would be a group of maybe six or seven guys and then half of you would preach one day and the other half of you would evaluate the other person. Um, so you would just get up and preach this sermon, which is just something that you've worked really hard on and people give you feedback immediately. Like you're very raw. Like it's, it's awesome slash your worst nightmare. Um, but I'll never forget the first one that I went to. This is my uh, first semester of seminary, and it was one of my buddies, he, he got up and he, he preached a sermon that was, you know, like it was technically good. Like it, it did everything that we were being taught to do. Um, he, he wrote it out well, and like, you know, his, his, he basically just read his manuscript. It wasn't perfect, but like he was trying. Um, and then we, my, my professor, uh, who honestly was one of like the, the, the most kind um, soft-spoken people I've ever met. He's also an incredibly gifted preacher, gifted communicator. Um, just being with him is like kind of what you feel like being with Jesus would be like. Like he was just a very, very kind man. And he would let us give give our friend feedback. So we were giving, you know, giving my friend some feedback, telling him about his sermon, you know, pretty much all positive. And then after we had given feedback, my professor just kind of stood up and said to my friend who's just preached this sermon, he says, did you believe a word of what you just said? Because I was just listening to it, and it, it, honestly, it didn't sound like you believed a word of what you said. And we're all just like sitting there like, oh shoot, like this just got real, shots fired, like so glad this is not me, what does he mean by that? But then kind of what he was getting at, he went on to say something after that that, I, that I'll never forget. He said to my friend, you did a fine job of describing God's word. You did a fine job of describing how good God is, but you didn't seem to experience it. There's something very different about describing honey and actually tasting it. Make sure next time when you get up, you taste the honey. And he just left him with that. And I think that's instructive for what we're looking at in this passage. You see, we're not only called to affirm good things about God with our mind, which we are. We're called to believe what God's word says. We're called to submit to it. But this passage, it's, it's more than that. It's a call to adore God. It's a call to our, our inward being. The psalmist says, let, let all that is within me praise his holy name. It's a call for us to, to feel feelings about God. It's a call for us to gush about him, to feel excited and to be able to say, from, from the absolute core of our being in the inside to say, you are good and all you do is good. But if we're honest with ourselves, it, it's not always easy to get there, is it? It's not always easy to say that from the core of our being. And why not? 
I can think of uh, two broad reasons. There might be more, but these are just two, two that I thought of. And the first one, I think, is because we understand that God's goodness is a threat to our plans. God's goodness is a threat to our plans. And what do, what do I mean by this? Why is God's goodness a threat to our plans? Um, when I was around seven years old, uh, there was nothing that I wanted more than this candy red bow and arrow from Walmart. Uh, this was like the, the object of my desire. See, I had two older brothers who had both just recently gotten BB guns and that they could shoot in the woods next to our house. And I knew that in order to be like them, I, I needed to have a weapon. But understandably, my parents did not want to give seven-year-old Thomas a BB gun, which makes a lot of sense. Probably a good call, Mom and Dad. Uh, but one day, I went to Walmart with my mom, as you do in a small town when you're looking for stuff to do. And I decided I'm going to give her a hard sell on this uh, candy red bow and arrow. Like, here's why I need this, Mom. Here's why you need to give me this candy red bow and arrow. Uh, so I, I told her, you know, Mom, I could shoot at targets with Matt and Ben. I, I would be out of your hair. You wouldn't have to worry about me. I could go hunting. I could provide us food, which, hindsight, I never could have done that. But I could be like Robin Hood. You know how much I love Robin Hood, Mom. And then kind of the, the, the piece de resistance, I, I said, I'll never ask for anything from you ever again. Just give me this one thing. And the list goes on. But my mom's response was pretty typical at that time in my life. She said, ask your dad and see what he says. Ask your dad and see what he says. So I, uh, you know, came back to my mom the next day and I told her that dad had said, yes, I could have the bow and arrow. And so we went to Walmart and I got my heart's desire and I had like the best afternoon shooting this bow and arrow. It was great. I had gotten exactly what I wanted. I was living the good life. But the only problem was that with this was that I had not, in fact, talked to my dad and asked him whether I could have the bow and arrow. I didn't ask him at all. I didn't ask him for the bow and arrow. I, I, just, I just decided that I would make up that he said yes. And before you start judging my parents, this was before the age of cell phones. So it wasn't like mom could just text dad and say like, hey, is this true? Like there, there was no fact checking at that time. We just took people at their word. It was a simpler time. You see, I, I had a clear idea of what was good for seven-year-old Thomas. I had a clear idea that, that I had to have this bow and arrow, that this is what good meant. I couldn't conceive of, of good apart from me having this bow and arrow. So I took matters into my own hands, and I, I lied. I tried to get my parents to give me what I wanted, no matter what the cost. You see, in the same way, saying to God, you are good and all that you do is good, is us saying to God, God, you know what's best for me. And it's okay if I don't understand how what's going on in my life fits into that. It's okay that I don't understand, but you're still good. And that is hard. It is hard to say to God, you know what's best for me. It's hard to say that when we're going through pain. It's hard to say that when we're going through loss. It's hard to say that when we don't have the things that we think we need in order to be okay. And many of you know this all too well, especially right now. I know I feel this. You've suffered a lot of loss recently. This, this pandemic has shut down everything. 
many of you seniors have lost your last semester. I mean, all of you have lost a semester of college, and, and many of you I've talked to have lost internships and, and job prospects, and the future that looks so clear now looks really, really uncertain. How can you say in the midst of this that God, you are good, and all you do is good? This doesn't feel good. What's going on doesn't feel good. How can I call God good in this? How can I call God good when my plans are disrupted? So first, we understand God's goodness is a threat to our plans. But second, I think uh, we, we struggle to say this to God. We struggle to say that you are good and all that you do is good because God's goodness seems a little too good to be true. And what do I mean by this? So for many of us, uh, God's goodness is so far from what our experience has been in this world. Our, our, our world hasn't felt like a world wherein God is good. You see, we saw from this passage that God is forgiving, healing, and restoring. For many of us, that has not been our experience of forgiveness. Many of you know what it's like to have someone forgive you only to hold it against you at a later date. Many of us are, are the ones who do that, who hold things against people. For many of you, your family or maybe even your group of friends, it isn't a place where it feels like it's okay for you to be flawed. It isn't a place where it feels like if you mess up, there will be an opportunity for you to be forgive, forgiven, for you to be healed, and for you to be restored. It seems like you have to be perfect. You have to hold everything together. You can't let anyone see you as imperfect. But we saw also that God gives us grace at our worst moment. And this is, I mean, this is a beautiful thing. How could you not read this and want that? All of us want to be met with grace in our moment of shame. We want to know that it's okay. But for many of us, it hasn't felt okay in our worst moments. Many of you have relationships where it feels like you are constantly making up for something that you did years ago. And many of you maybe even feel that way with God. You feel like you have to make up for some sin that you committed long ago. The idea of a perfect God who gives grace in our failure is hard to understand because it, it just doesn't fit with our experience. Our experience is of imperfect people not being able to forgive. So how in the world could a perfect God forgive? And finally, we saw God is a compassionate and knowing Father. And for some of us, the word Father doesn't make us think of compassion, does it? For some of us, the word Father makes us think of abuse, makes us think of, of anxiety, it makes us think of absence. You may be thinking, how, how can I learn to love God as Father when I've never had a compassionate, knowing Father? What I'm getting at here is that the ways that we have been sinned against shape our, our view of what is possible. It shapes our view of who God might be. When we read of the overwhelming goodness of God in Psalm 103, it's easy for us to say, well, that's just too good to be true. That hasn't been my experience. I don't know forgiveness like that. 
my family doesn't feel like this, my friends don't feel like this, my life doesn't feel like this. Every time that I've done wrong, I've been crushed by people. Or, or maybe it's even my, my dad was never interested in me. You see, we're scared to give our hearts to God because we think that he might crush us just like everyone else has. How can I call God good in this? You see, to say to God, you are good and all you do is good is to renounce our control of life. And I think we, we intuitively understand that. We say that no matter what, that God is good, that God is in control, that he gets to decide what's good for us, that we're not the ones who are best suited to make that decision. This is to acknowledge that we don't know what is best for ourselves. It's to acknowledge that we don't, we don't have to see how our circumstances fit into his plan. But we trust that when all is said and done, we will be able to say that God has been good to us. So how can we say what this psalm calls us to? How can we say, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name, when we feel pain and loss? How can we say this when we're scared that he's going to crush us? How can we trust God is good when our experiences tell us otherwise? And I think one of the most helpful things about this psalm is that it, it points beyond itself, in a sense. You see, we see repeatedly in this psalm that God is full of forgiveness and righteousness. That God accepts us, that he, he pardons us, but that he is also righteous. And what that means, simple, simply righteous, is kind of a Bible word, but it, it just means that God is perfectly right in all of his ways. He's perfectly good in all of his ways. But then we also see that he's forgiving. He's also overwhelmingly eager to forgive us for our wrongs. So how can God be both perfectly right in all his ways and perfectly willing to forgive us for our wrongs? Right? In our experience, it's either one or the other. I know many of us might know people who are like right all the time. Like everything is right. Or at least they think so. And being around a person like that, forgiveness is not a high priority, right? You have your stuff together. Forgiveness is unnecessary. You don't need to be forgiven if you're always right. But then we also might know people who are really accepting. People who, no matter what, they will accept you. But what we see here is a union of that. A perfect union of, of forgiveness and righteousness. We see this in God. How, how can these be joined together perfectly. And I think, so this psalm points beyond itself. What I mean by that is that it points, I believe, to Jesus. We see these things perfectly joined together in Jesus. In Jesus, we can understand how, how verse 10 of our passage, it says, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities, is possible. It's possible that Jesus, that we're not dealt with according to our sins because of Jesus. See, Jesus lived this life that was perfectly right. He was righteous in all his ways. He said to God at all times, You are good, and all you do is good. He said this from the heart when his family thought he was crazy, and they did. He said this from the heart when his disciples thought he was crazy. He said to God, You are good, and all you do is good. When his disciples were 
And in his moment of need, they abandoned him. He said this to God when his disciples just completely misunderstood everything, and they're off battling, which one of us is the best, Jesus? He still said this to God. He said this from the heart when he went to the cross and suffered a criminal's death. See, there was not a moment in Jesus' life where he could not say with absolute integrity in every part of his being, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And yet Jesus died. Why? See, Jesus died so that we could know God the way that he is described in this psalm. God had to deal with our wrongs somehow. In order for him to be perfectly right and perfectly forgiving, he had to deal with our wrongs. And the good news of the gospel is that God dealt with our wrongs in Jesus. Jesus went down to the pit so that we might be crowned with steadfast love and mercy. See, God dealt with Jesus according to our sins, and he repaid Jesus according to our iniquities. You see, David, when he wrote this psalm, he could say that God does not deal with us according to our sins because he knew that someday God was going to provide a lasting forgiveness. And Jesus is the final forgiveness that Psalm 103 points toward. And when we look to Jesus, we can begin to say from the heart, You are good, and all you do is good. We can look to Jesus in the midst of our loss. And I know a lot of us are experiencing loss right now. When we suffer loss, we can look to Jesus and we can see one who knows what it's like to suffer loss. In fact, he suffered the ultimate loss in our place. He lived a perfect life, had a perfect relationship with God, and yet he was treated as one who didn't. He was treated as a sinner. When we look to Jesus, we see that God has given us far better than we ever deserved. See, Jesus suffered profound loss, but from his loss came the greatest gain. And not only did Jesus die, he was raised to new life and crowned with glory and honor. Jesus' loss meant the purchasing and purifying of a people. It meant bringing us in. His loss meant that he gained us. And if God can bring blessing from such a huge loss as the death of Jesus, what in the world could he not bring blessing from? If God showed himself to be good in the death of his own son, what in your life can he not show himself to be good in? We can also look to Jesus in our fear. Though we all, I think we all long for the sort of love that we see in Psalm 103, many of us are hesitant. We're afraid that, that it's too good to be true, that God's going to let us down, that God's going to crush us like everyone else has. But look to Jesus in this. Look to Jesus and see that, that, that God poured out his wrath and crushed Jesus so that he would never, ever crush you. God poured out the pain of his judgment on Jesus so that he could pour out blessing on you. And look to Jesus and let his love dissolve your fears. And look to Jesus and say with everything that is within you, you are good. And all that you do is good. Let's pray. 
Our Father, you are good, and all you do is good. Lord, you are perfect in all your ways, and yet you are forgiving. It's, it's hard for us to understand how someone could be both perfectly right and perfectly forgiven. And yet we see that in the cross. Lord, we see your righteousness and your forgiveness meet in the cross. And when we look to the cross, Lord, we are able more and more to trust you. More and more to say from the heart that you are good. I pray, Lord, that you would be near to us uh, as we consider um, the, the pains in our own heart, as we consider the ways that it's hard for us to believe in your goodness, that it's hard for us to submit to your goodness. Lord, give us grace. Be near to us. Show yourself who you are in Psalm 103. And all these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.